turn again to God's Word, this time uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and reading from verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. I wonder honestly what your reaction was when you heard that we were going to be looking at the book of Leviticus this evening. I have to say, I was having a cup of tea after the service last Sunday evening. I'll not tell you who I was sitting with, but when I told them that I would be looking at Leviticus this week, they laughed and they said, good luck with that. (laughs) And they're not the only person to have said that to me, it has to be said, even in the time since. Maybe you can relate to the person who said that to me. Well, this isn't going to work, I don't think. Maybe actually, it might be better to think of the words of the psalmist. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Really? For I delight in your commands because I love them. Seriously? And a personal favorite, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Those are all from Psalm 139. Now, I don't highlight any of those verses to make light of them or to mock them. The psalmist had good reason to delight in the law of the Lord, and so do we. I don't know if by the end of this sermon you'll be panting with your mouth open, asking me to read more of Leviticus or not, but I do hope that at least we'll see how they point us to what Jesus has done, because they do describe his work when he died for us. So we can rejoice in them too. I want to start this evening just by recapping where we are in the biblical story since it's been over a month since the last night of the Bible Project. When God created the earth, it was his desire to walk in fellowship with his people, to care for them, to bless them, to extend his kingdom throughout the whole earth. It was a place of of perfection of justice, of mercy and kindness and love. God wanted to dwell with his people. But when Adam and Eve sinned, 
that was lost. Humanity could no longer live in God's presence. And it's not until the very end of the Bible in the latter verses of Revelation that we see that restored. God and people living together once again. So we're somewhere between these two extremes, Eden and the new creation. And God, as we watched in the video a few moments ago, had chosen a family he called Abraham. And he promised that he would call and take a people to himself. And that scene in some way in how God has brought the people of Israel out from Egypt and brought them to Sinai. And the people here in Leviticus, they're still at Sinai, although God is no longer at the top of the mountain, but he's dwelling in the tabernacle. But if this is going to be the way of things, if this is how it's going to be, then God makes it clear in Leviticus that certain conditions have to be met. And that's exactly why the psalmist, and indeed others in the Old Testament, can rejoice in the words of Leviticus. Because if the people followed these laws perfectly, then they truly could be God's covenant people. They could live in close relationship with him and spread his kingdom on the earth just as it was meant to be. Leviticus mapped out a way for humanity to experience what we were created for, fellowship with God. And that's why we can rejoice in these words too. The words in Leviticus, says the author of Hebrews, are a shadow of what was to come in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So by looking at these things tonight, we're hopefully going to see how they point to Jesus. As Hebrews 10 and verse 1 tells us, the Levitical sacrifices were a shadow of good things to come. They tell us about the work of Jesus. But before we think about the sacrifices, there are a few things I just want to outline. And the first is holiness. We began this evening singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Leviticus 19 and verse 1 says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But what does it mean to be holy? Well, holiness first and foremost really just means being different. God is different to us. He's other than us. He is holy. We are not. But it also carries that sense of purity and sinlessness. But we are not holy. God had to command, be holy, because we're not holy. He didn't say, well, you are holy just as I am holy. He said, be holy as I am holy. And that leaves us with a big problem, because if God is holy and we are not, and if we must be holy to live in his presence and we're not, then we can't live in his presence. And Leviticus points us to two solutions. The first, which we're not really thinking about tonight, is repentance. And that's pretty obvious. If the people aren't going to turn to God, then they're not going to be able to live with Him. But the other is atonement. Atonement, and it's one of those words that we sometimes throw about in church, and we all assume that we know what it means. Growing up in church, my, um, my minister in my home church never pronounced the word atonement as atonement. He always pronounced it at one mint because that's what atonement is. It's coming to be at one with God. Sometimes we think of the how that happens through sacrifice, but actually the what of atonement, what is it? It's being restored into relationship with God, being made at one with him. 
At its core, atonement is being brought together with God. It's a word of love. It's something that God has done for us. He's brought us into relationship with himself because he loves us. He wants to be at one with us. And this happens in, in two ways. And again, the video talked a little bit about this. The first is through ransom. Sin is costly. Sin has a price. God is just, and therefore, if we sin, that sin has to be punished in some way. Atonement involves ransom. But even if that debt is paid, there's something else that needs to happen because we're stained by our sin. Even if the sin has been punished, we still remain stained. And so purification is required. We need to be made, physically made holy. The sin has to be paid for, but we have to be made clean. So how does that happen? Well, in Leviticus, it's through the sacrificial system. For us, it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but the two really go hand in glove. So I'm going to look at each of the types of sacrifices in Leviticus in turn this evening. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend a long time in all of them because there are, there are five of them. And um, The first three really go together, uh, and the last two go together as well. But we're going to think about that. But that's the big idea. God wants to dwell with his people. But as it stands, that can't happen. We're not holy. We're not holy as he is holy. But God wants to do something about that, so he offers us a way. If we turn to him, he provides atonement for us. He pays the price for our sin, and he purifies us. He makes us holy so we can come into his presence. So the first type of sacrifice is the whole burnt offering. Now, if you're very um, awake this evening, you might have noticed that in the reading it's just called the burnt offering, but more often than not, it's referred to as the whole burnt offering because some of the other sacrifices were also burnt offerings, but this one involved the burning of the whole animal. So it's called the whole burnt offering. And I suppose a helpful way for us to think about these sacrifices is to think about them as meals. If you think about it, you've got the whole burnt offering, that was your meat. You've got the grain offering, that was your bread. And if you were preparing a meal for a guest, um, particularly about this time, you'd have had meat and bread. That, those would have been just the key components. And very often you find in the sacrifices that there is meat and there is bread. And some is offered to God, but some is actually eaten by the priest. And some is eaten by the person who brings the offering. It's the idea of, of having a meal together, of having fellowship with God. But this one's different. This one's different. The whole animal is presented. It's put on the altar, and it's all given to God. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it describes our, our sense of sinfulness, <laughs> simply. We are so far short of God. We, we have no right to participate in this particular meal. Part of the animal won't do. We are sinful people, and so the whole animal must be given to God as a burnt offering. It is all for him, and, and the wholeness is because of just how far fallen that we are. And when it comes to us as believers, this being the shadow of something that Jesus was going to do in the future, Sometimes people say, well, well why, did, why did God save us that way? Could God not have just dealt with sin some other way? 
could God not have just canceled our sin or put the punishment on somebody else or on something else? But the whole burnt offering points us to the fact that our sin was so great that there was no other way. Anything else would have, would have fallen short of paying the price for our sin. So the whole burnt offering, it's the whole animal because the people were greatly sinful. And so Jesus had to offer up his body, everything he had to pay the price for our sins. I want to pick up on just a few other things in the whole burnt offering. You might have noticed that there were, there were three different kind of sets. There was from the flock or from the herd or even from the birds. But in each case at the end, it said it was an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, why include that detail? Why, again, is that significant? Well, I don't know if in your trek through, uh, a trek is maybe too mean a word, in your journey through Exodus, whether you, you looked at Exodus chapter 34, it's the point where Moses asks to see God's glory, and, and God says, look, no one can see my glory and live. But Moses insists, so God sets him in the cleft of the rock and puts his hand over him and passes by, his glory passes by, and Moses sees something of God's glory. I think most translations say the back of God. He sees something, a glimpse of God's glory. And what does God say as he passes by? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But in Hebrew, and don't worry, this isn't a Hebrew lesson, but in Hebrew, the phrase that says, slow to anger, actually has something to do with the nose. Because the word in Hebrew for anger is also the word for your nose. And in the Old Testament, if it says somebody is angry, actually what it literally says in the Hebrew is that they have a hot nose. Now, there's a useless piece of biblical trivia for you. Um, it might come up in a table quiz sometime. But the point is that when it says that God is slow to anger, it essentially says that God has a long nose. It takes a long time for the smell of the sin to reach God. And in the minor prophets in the Bible, sin is often described as a stench, a stench in God's nostrils. And yet he's slow to anger. He's slow to recognize sin. Now, he does not let the guilty go unpunished, the words go on to say. And that's why this offering's necessary. It's a ransom. It, it pays the price for the sinfulness of the people. But it's an aroma pleasing to God. It covers over, if you like, the smell of the sins, the stench of the sins. This is an aroma pleasing to God. It, it, it just shows us that the sins are forgiven. The sins are covered over. They're not recognized by God anymore. This is accepted by God to cover our sins. And so it is with Jesus. We sang a song a few moments ago, and it's a song that I really, really like, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's a beautiful song. I hope that I'm not doing that. Um, but in the first verse, it says that the Father turned his face away. And I understand why it says that. But sometimes I wonder, because Jesus' sacrifice was an aroma pleasing to God. It was something that the Father accepted on our behalf to cover our sins. So it's the whole burnt offering, it's the whole body because our sin is great. Jesus had to offer his body. It's an aroma pleasing because it covers over our sin. And then the last thing I want to say about the burnt offering 
is that it included the use of birds. Now that might seem like a very, again, a very random statement. Why, why am I picking that up? Well, the point is that for the average Israelite, you probably had to be reasonably well off to afford an animal from the flock or an animal from the herd. You might have had some, but you, know, you might have been dependent on them for your income. You mightn't have been able to offer that up, particularly for the poorest in Israel. But if the people were going to follow the laws in Leviticus, particularly the ones about the treatment of the poor and the underprivileged, then even the poorest in society would be able to afford the bird. This was a sacrifice that was available to all the Israelites. It wasn't something that required them to have a certain amount of money or have a certain standing in society. It was something that was open to all of them. And so everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10 says, Jesus' death doesn't require you to have any kind of standing or status or money or whatever. It's there for all who will call on his name. So the whole burnt offering was all about paying the ransom for sin. Jesus' death pays the ransom for our sin. I told you not to panic. I'm not going to talk about all five for that length, okay? The grain offering then. Now, in the little video we watched, it said that it was one of the offerings that said thank you to God. And that's very true. But there's more to it than that. So this would have always accompanied another offering. It would have always accompanied one of the other offerings that involved slaughter. But there's one significant thing that I want to pick out in this, and it's simply this. The offering included salt. The offering included salt. If you look at Leviticus 3 and 13, the people were to put salt into their bread. Now, salt was obviously something that could be added to food for flavor, but also for perseverance. I'm trying to think of the word. To preserve, a preservative, thank you. The word just left my head there for a moment. A few years ago, um, I was making uh, pizzas. I say I was making, Justine was making pizzas um, with some of our young people in our youth fellowship. And she misread the instruction of how much salt she was to put into the pizza dough. It said one teaspoon, but she put one tablespoon. And you wouldn't think that would make that much difference in a big batch. But as the young people were eating their pizza and they were screwing their faces up and they were saying, what is this? What's wrong with this? We realized that it was very important. A little bit of salt can really make a lot of difference, both to the taste and into, something, into how something is preserved. One commentator has said this, salt represented the permanence of the covenant that the Israelites had just entered into with the Lord. By requiring them to add salt to their offerings, the Lord provided them a way to constantly affirm their covenant relationship with him, reminding them of God's steadfast commitment to be with them. The salt in the offering was something that represented God's promises. He promised that he was going to be with them. He was going to be their God. They were going to be his people. And that was something that was never ever going to be taken away. That's a promise that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Think about how long the people were waiting before Jesus came, but he did come and he did offer up his life. God's promises endure forever. Then the, the fellowship offerings, sometimes they're called peace offerings. 
And again, in the video, they were described as a, as a thank you, and that, again, is right. But again, there's something else that's significant here. Only the best part of the meat is offered to God. It was the, the fat. It was what was considered the best part was offered to God. It's very much like a burnt offering, but the rest of the meat is divided between the priest and the offerer. It was a way of the people actually having a meal, if you like, with God himself. There was a relationship between God and man. Their sins had been forgiven in the burnt offering, and now they could have relationship with God. And that was symbolized by the fact that they could eat with him. And in the new covenant with Jesus, only the best could be offered to atone for sins. Again, it it was something his whole body had to be given. It was the best that God had. God sent his son, the one who was God himself. Jesus is God. And he came, the very best to be offered as a sacrifice for us. But we can share in that. And we do it every time we gather around the Lord's table in church, as we break bread and as we drink wine. We share in his body. We have communion with him. Jesus was the only sacrifice, the best given for us. And we can actually participate in that. And we can have relationship with him. And it's symbolized most strongly when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then the last two types of sacrifice really go together. There's the reparation offering, which is sometimes called the guilt offering, and then purification. So the reparation offering was all about paying a ransom, but you might say, well, hold on, the whole burnt offering did that, so why why have another one? Why just have another type of offering with lots of different types of rules and regulations and things you have to follow? But the difference here is that this covered specific sins. So where the whole burnt offering was just an atonement, I say just, it was an atonement for our fallen condition. It was something that um, just acknowledged that the people were sinful. This was when they knew that they had broken a law, when they knew that, oh, I've broken the covenant, I've broken that law. This was how they made it right with God. And it was a way for God to show his grace to the people. Because he knew, even though he commanded them to be holy, just as he is holy, and he commands us to do the same, we know that we fail all the time, and we sin all the time. So God made a way for these sins to be dealt with. And so, for us in the death of Jesus on the cross, yes, he he deals with our sinfulness, he, he deals with the fact that our relationship with God is broken, but he actually takes on sin itself. The Bible says that he was made sin for us. One songwriter has put it this way. They said, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning his bloodstained brow. All of our sins are put on him. And that's how even if we have been forgiven, if we're believers, as we go on living our lives and as we continue to sin, those sins are put on him. Those sins are dealt with. Those sins are forgiven. And then finally, the, the purification sacrifice, sometimes called the sin offering. Well, that's maybe slightly 
misleading. It's, this is all about becoming holy. If the sins have been dealt with in the reparation offering and in the whole burnt offering, this is all about removing the stain that's left behind, about becoming holy. It was also used to, to deal with ritual impurity. Because God is pure, but God is also merciful. Because of his great purity, he couldn't permit this defilement to exist in the midst of his people. But because of his great mercy, he couldn't help but provide a way for it to be dealt with. And this was the purification offering. And Jesus is the ultimate purification offering. Hebrews 10 and 14 few verses later than we read says that for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and there's kind of a nearly a little disagreement there it says he has perfected and yet it also says we are being sanctified and that's part of just the mystery of, of the Christian life we know that we are sanctified. We know that we are made perfect. We know that because of what Jesus has done, we are made holy in his sight. And yet at the same time, we're constantly being made holy. We're constantly being sanctified. We're constantly becoming more like Jesus. And all of this, all of these sacrifices culminate in the day of atonement. Two goats. One is sacrificed. That is dealing with sin. It is taking the guilt on the people's behalf and one is taking sin away symbolically away from the people the people are being purified Jesus in his death by his body being broken for us pays the price for our sin and by the shedding of his blood we are purified one question that might arise out of all of this is well if Jesus sacrifice covers all sins for those who believe, then why ever have a sacrificial system? Did those sacrifices mean anything? Why did they ever exist? Leviticus teaches that they forgive sins, but we read in Hebrews 10 and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So do these two things contradict one another? One commentator has, has given a, a metaphor for this, and I think it's very helpful. Sacrifices in the Old Testament are a bit like writing a check to cover the debt of sin. God, because he's gracious, receives the check. He declares the debt paid. He declares the sin forgiven, and he assures forgiveness to the one who offered the sacrifice. But he doesn't cash the check, not just yet, because in the grand scheme of things, it's not possible. It's not possible for the blood of an animal to pay the price for human sin. But God forgave the sin because he knew that one day there would be money in the account to cover the debt when Jesus gave his lifeblood as the perfect and final ransom for sinners. In other words, the atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointers to a much greater atoning sacrifice to come, one that would be enough to cover the debt of sin fully and finally. Jesus was that sacrifice. He is our whole burnt offering. He gave up everything. His body was broken to pay the price for our sin. The fact that such a great sacrifice was needed shows how far short we fall in terms of being able to enter 
into relationship with God. But he has paid that sacrifice. He has bridged that great divide. The old hymn says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And he has done that. His death is an aroma pleasing to God. His sacrifice has been accepted so we can run into the arms of God, receive full forgiveness and know his acceptance and love and be in relationship with him just as he created us to do. Jesus is our grain offering. He is that salt, the fulfillment of the promises of God from the very beginning. He shows us God's faithfulness. And not only have the promises endured, but his victory over sin and death will endure forever. His sacrifice means that we will live with him eternally. Jesus is our fellowship offering. God offered only the very best for us. Such was the depth of his love for us that he didn't withhold his son, his very self, to die in our place. The author in Hebrews can describe the bloodshed as the blood of God. And so we have fellowship with God. Because of what he has done, the Holy Spirit lives in us and we have communion with God always. King of kings, majesty, we sang. That's what God gave. He gave his best. God of heaven, living in me. Jesus is our reparation or our guilt offering. God is just. He cannot leave and does not leave sin unpunished. But Jesus paid the price. And our sins have been punished. They've been dealt with. That has been done. Paul wrote to the Romans, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus, redemption, paying the price. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Jesus is our purification offering. God is holy, and Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus has made it possible for us to be in relationship with God, not only by paying the price for our sin, but actively taking it away from us. God remembers our sins no more, and even though the struggle with sin is real, we are holy in his sight and long for the day when we'll be truly holy in his presence. And the most amazing thing in all of this, all of it is done by God, not by us. In the midst of the material for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 17, we read this in verse 11. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I myself have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. God always takes the initiative and provides the sacrifice. God had provided Israel with everything they had, so he had provided those animals, those sacrifices. And it's the same for us in Jesus. Galatians 4 and 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of a son. God sent his son. He did it. He provides the whole burnt and grain and fellowship and reparation and purification offerings. Of his own free love and grace, he sent Jesus. 
He is the one who makes us holy. We read words earlier from Leviticus 19. In the very next chapter, it says this. Keep my decrees and follow them. Be holy because I am the Lord your God who makes you holy. It's his work. If you're here this evening and you haven't received the gift that God has given you, can I ask you what's holding you back? Do you maybe feel like you're not good enough, like there's something you have to do first, some things you have to get in order before Jesus could possibly accept you? That is simply not the case. We don't have to be our own sacrifice or give our own sacrifice. We don't have to have it all together before we come to God because he has given the sacrifice. He has paid the debt. He has made things right between us and him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You can come to the Savior today just as you are and receive his life. But the temptation to think that we have to sacrifice something to please God is very present for the believer too. I came to faith at quite a young age, but for years I struggled with guilt, with feeling like I wasn't good enough. If I could just pray more, if I could just be a bit more committed to reading the Bible and and not miss so many days, if I could just get past that one sin that trips me up again and again and again and again, no matter how hard I try, and I just can't seem to get past it. It's important to note, and it is a good thing to obey God, to strive for holiness in the way we live, and the Bible teaches us that very clearly. But if you're in the midst of that struggle here tonight, hear this. Jesus has paid the price for your struggles. Sadly, while we live in this sinful world, they will continue. But as you seek to obey God, know this. You are loved by him so much that he gave the very best for you to pay the price for those struggles. And the Bible tells us that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. And nothing can change that. We are holy in his sight. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is enough for our sins. The price is paid. He is the final sacrifice. As he said on the cross, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. Lord, even for those parts which are maybe a little more difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Lord, thank you that you have given it to us and that it does point us to Jesus on every page. Lord, thank you for sending him into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, for that at one that we can enjoy, that relationship restored, that being at one with you because of the price that he has paid. Lord, thank you that it's not based on anything that we have done or could do, but all on what you have done in him. Lord, help us in our daily struggle with sin. Lord, help us to be holy just as you are holy. But Lord, thank you that you have made us holy, that we are holy and blameless in your sight. Lord, would you help us to rest in that and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen.